Welcome to Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Hosted by Irving Rich. Thoughts on John's First Epistle. By James Boyd. Chapter 2. What we find in the first three verses of chapter 1 was written to the saints that their joy might be full. For nothing could be greater than the wealthy place of privilege opened out to them in those few simple sentences with which the epistle opens. What we have in the rest of the chapter is written that they might not sin. We are placed in relationship with the Father, and with His Son Jesus Christ, we are the brethren of Christ, His Father our Father, and His God our God. Our hearts living and delighting in the love of which He is the worthy object, that our joy might be full. And we are there in the presence of the complete revelation of God where everything in us and pertaining to us, every fibre of our moral and spiritual being, shines perfectly unmasked in the clear and cloudless light of God where nothing is, or could be unapparent, and therein all the value of the blood of Jesus Christ God's Son, and these things are written to us that we may not sin. These two things are evidently possible to all believers, fullness of joy, and faultless conduct. Paul says of himself and his fellow worker Timothy, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 10, and I am sure that it is only as our hearts are rejoicing in the love of God that we shall be able to go through this defiling world without the flesh asserting itself, and resulting in an overt act of sin. It might be thought that the Apostle is here speaking of what people call perfection in the flesh, but it is the very opposite of this, for if we, sin not, it is not because the flesh has become bettered. But it is because we walk in the Spirit, and thus in the refusal of the flesh, knowing all the time that sin is there in us ready to reign in our members, and bring forth fruit unto death. And this knowledge is very useful to us, for it keeps us on our guard, whereas if we got the notion into our minds that we had arrived at a point of sinless perfection, in which there was left no taint or root of sin in us, we would be unconscious of danger, and a heavy fall would most likely be that which would awaken us out of our delusive dream. But how blessed it is that we are told that if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Not by our works was the place we have before the face of God acquired, and not by our conduct is it maintained. Christ secured the place for us, and the maintenance of the place hangs entirely upon him, and not upon us in any sense whatever. It has often been remarked that the word here translated advocate, is the same word as that translated comforter in John's Gospel, the meaning of which is, one who maintains our interests. We have therefore two advocates, one on earth, and one in heaven, one with us, and one with the Father. The Holy Spirit sees to what concerns us down here, and Christ to what concerns our place with the Father. While Christ was with his disciples upon earth, he was their paraclete, as the word is both in the gospel and in the epistle, for he took entire charge of them in every way. Whether as to their relations with God, or as to their testimony upon earth, but when leaving them, he spoke of another paraclete, who would abide with them forever. Christ had come to them, and had secured their affections, and was now about to leave them behind him in this hostile world, but the other paraclete, whom he would send them from the Father, would remain with them. And he would remain with them by dwelling in them. He would also be their teacher, and would bring back to their minds all that Jesus had said to them. He would also testify of Christ, guide them into all truth, and acquaint their hearts with the things of Christ. The fact is, he was to be everything to them in their need down here. But what concerned them down here was not all their need, they were to have a place outside this world in heaven before the Father's face, and this place must be secured for them, and not only secured for them, but held on their behalf until the day would arrive in which they would be received into the place in accordance with divine counsel. Jesus has gone within the veil, and won the place for us, and maintains us in the light of God, in accordance with the righteousness and holiness which are characteristic of that place, and by and by he will come and receive us to himself, that where he is we may be also.
and as Jesus had been everything to them when here among them, and as he had taken complete charge of them in every way, so that he could say to the Father, Those that thou gavest me I have kept. And none of them is lost, John chapter 17 verse 12, so would the Holy Spirit take complete charge of them in Christ's absence. But it is to the paraclete on high, Jesus Christ the righteous, our attention is drawn in this epistle. He is the propitiation for our sins, for whatever our past history has been, this is no longer in question, neither is it a question of our present practical state. The only question is as to the value of his work and person who represents us before the Father's face on high. He is also the propitiation for the whole world, for it is so great it could not be limited in its bearing toward man, in him God speaks in grace to all. From verse 3 to 11, the character of our walk is taken account of as demonstrating the sphere in which our walk is. By this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. If God has abounded toward us in grace, in spite of our many sins, it is not to give us a license to go on in sin. And if Christ died for the ungodly, as the witness of the love of God to man, and if God justifies the ungodly in the power of Christ's precious blood, it is not that we may continue in ungodliness. The light in which God has come out to man has taken effect upon the hearts of those who are in that light, for if we are in the light, the light is in us, and we know God. And this has a great moral effect upon us. We have also received the Spirit of the Righteous One, that we might be led in the paths of righteousness, for his name's sake. What is this name? Jesus Christ the Righteous. What an excellent name. He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, and for his name's sake he leads us in the paths of righteousness, and in these paths our hearth are maintained in the enjoyment of the light of God. It is always dangerous to build upon a past experience. We need to be going on daily and hourly with God. Where the heart has got away from the Lord and the feet have wandered out of the paths of righteousness, a bold pretension to be in relationship with God is not only utterly unseemly and hypocritical, but dangerous in the extreme, and if it be persisted in, it must result in disaster. He that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There were many such in the early days of Christianity, and their number has not decreased during the centuries which have elapsed since then. They were far from keeping Christ's commandments, yet they mixed up with believers. But the truth was not in them, for had it been in them they would have been characterized by it, and not by falsehood. Jesus says, He that has my commandments, and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. The one who keeps his commandments walks in company with him, and walking thus in company with him, we know that we know him. But he that keeps his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. His word which is the expression of the thoughts of his heart toward us, who is in his nature love. When it has an abiding place in us, brings the love of God there, so that it becomes the life of our souls, and the spring of all our activities, and by this we know that we are in him. In keeping his commandments we abide in his love, we are loved of the Father, and Jesus manifests himself to us, so that we are brought into intimacy with him, and in this way we know that we know him. And in keeping his word, the love of God so takes possession of us, and so controls us, and so energizes our hearts and minds that the consequence is we dwell in the love of God. It is perfected in us, and we know that we are in him. But if we take the place of abiding in him, that is, if we assume to be Christians, we come under the obligation of walking as he walked. How, then, did he walk? He walked in the spirit of self-sacrificing love, from the very beginning of his history down here until its close. Paul tells us to walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savour. If we keep his word we are certain to do this in some measure, for the issues of life are out of the heart. And where the heart lives in love, love will direct our ways. 
and with Christ before our eyes as our great model and example we will come out among his own in the blessed features of that self-sacrificing love which so characterized him. It may be a very high standard for us, but I feel it is a very attractive standard. And it is all the more attractive to us as we learn that it does not come to us in the way of a demand which we have to fulfill in the energy of mere human nature. But as the expression of the will of God for us, and as something which he is both willing and able to accomplish in us, if we are only willing to place ourselves in his hands. This he tells them was no new commandment, but the old commandment which they had from the beginning. It is what had been set forth in Christ, the word they had heard from the beginning, the love of God to them, which was to take effect in them, and by which they were to be formed, and from which they were to take character. It was the will of God for them that what he is in his nature should be expressed in them. It did not come to them like the legal commandment addressed to the people by Moses, which occupied those who heard it with themselves and their inability to respond to the just demand. But it came to them in the one who was himself the witness of the love of God to them, and instead of occupying them with themselves and with their shortcomings, it occupied them with God in this wonderful manifestation of his unfathomable love in Christ, and as we draw near, for it attracts so that we draw near. We come under its life-giving power in such a way that we are formed by it, and become imitators of God, and walk as Christ walked. He speaks of it in verse 8 as a new commandment. It was new because divine love was now in the saints, the light of God was now in the saints the pledge that the darkness would surely disappear. When Christ came into the world the new commandment was declared, hitherto it had been pretty much what man ought to be, but when Christ came it was what God is, hence the commandment was new. Man must now take character from the revelation of the love of God in Christ. What was said by them of old time, was to give place to, children of your Father which is in heaven, and, be ye imitators of God as dear children. In this way God gave a new commandment by Christ. In contrast with all that had gone before, and Christ speaks of it in this way, John chapter 13 verse 34, but now the commandment was old. Because it had taken a new form and could be spoken of as new because it was not only in Christ, but in the saints. And the word was going out from those in whom that which Christ brought from heaven had taken effect. The saints were now giving the commandment to the world, as they will one day give it to the vast realm of bliss, and the commandment is the light of God in the heart of every intelligent being. It was therefore plain enough that whatever a man might profess, if he hated his brother he was in darkness, and had never been in the light. For he could not be in the light without the light being in him, and the light being the love of God, every one in the light would love his brother, therefore he says. He that loves his brother abides in the light, he does not allow any natural affection to carry him after any one into the sphere of darkness, if this were possible. If he did he would be more a stumbling block to his brother than anything else, and instead of bearing true testimony and becoming a means of light and salvation to others, he would be ministering to their destruction. He abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him, for being in the light he is himself luminous, and where anyone stumbles over a light he is without excuse. I suppose the Apostle has the unbelieving Jews before him as those who were in darkness, but pretended to be in the light of God, but whose rejection of Christ proved them to be without the knowledge of God. And that whatever light had been graciously accorded to them in the past dispensation, it had become darkness in them, because they were untrue to it. The Lord says to them, If the light that is in thee be darkness how great is that darkness! Had they been true to the light given them of God in the past, they would not have rejected the true light when it came in the person of Christ, had they believed Moses they would have believed him, but not having believed the writings of Moses. They believed not the words of Christ, John chapter 5 verses 46 to 47. Unfaithful to the light God had given them, and really hating it, they found darkness more congenial to them. 
and in the presence of the full light of God in Christ they shrank from it with deadly hostility into a deeper gloom of alienation from God, but alas they knew not whither they were going. For that darkness had blinded their eyes. It is said that fish in the cisterns of the earth, those depths of gloom where no ray of light penetrates, are blind, the organs of sight are there, by which the light might have entered. But the darkness has permanently destroyed the power to take it in, so that when brought into the presence of light, they are unable to see. I suppose a child with the organs of sight perfect, if born and shut up in a dungeon, would in a short time, if life remained, which is doubtful, be unable to receive the light of the sun. And thus the Jew who had light in measure, but who had so perverted it by his hostility to everything that was of God that in him it was nothing but gross darkness, now manifests by his rejection of Christ. That that darkness has blinded his eyes. But I am sure that this condition is not confined to the Jew, and therefore it behoves us all to be true to whatever light God has vouchsafed to us and to seek to walk according to it with a good conscience, in order that when further light is granted, we may not be in the company of those who rebel against it. In verse 12 the Apostle speaks of that which is true of all saints. There are things which are true of some believers which may not be true of others, for all have not arrived at the same state of maturity. The light which has come to us in Christ, and in which we all walk, is perfect, but it has not been apprehended by all in the same measure, there are babes, young men, and fathers. But whatever progress each may have made in the apprehension of the light, or in the knowledge of God, which is much the same thing, one thing is true of all, and true of all in the fullest measure. And that is, their sins are forgiven them for his name's sake. This is one of the blessings of the new covenant, and it is as true of the babe in Christ as of the Father. But while this is true of all, there are different stages of growth to be taken account of, and the Apostle classifies them as babes, young men, and fathers, stating what distinguished each class and setting forth the dangers to which each was exposed. The fathers knew him that is from the beginning. Christ has not been the development of anything that went before, instead of that, everything that was brought into existence in the past was brought into existence to serve to the end which God had in view from the beginning. And the end he had in view was Christ. There has been nothing antecedent to Christ, it was he who set the creative power of God in motion. It was with a view to the bringing in of Christ that the worlds were formed, and it was the Christ who filled the mind and thoughts of God, who guided the activity of his hands. When he laid the foundation of the universe, Christ has not been raised up merely to bring order out of chaos, but the man of God's counsels, the architect, originator, and creator of all things, and the one whom to serve everything has been formed, by whom and for whom everything exists, and the one who is eventually to fill all things. If old things must pass away, they will only do so when they have fulfilled their purpose, and when to retain them longer would be to hinder the purpose God had in view from the outset. And that was to bring in a universe of which Christ was to be the source, head, and center. The earth and heavens, as we see them now, must perish, everything must be altered, and made new, and all that is new will be the work of Christ, and will take character from him. For he will fill all things. What we call time is only a kind of parenthesis in the history of eternity, but we have had to do with it, and with a world in rebellion against God, and with darkness and death and sorrow and corruption, and with the power and subtlety of Satan. But when in this dreadful whirlpool of evil the light of the kindness and love of God to man reached us, we found ourselves drawn with a power irresistible out from all the confusion and restless activity of the mind of the fallen creature, to him who is the sun and center of a new system of things. And we learned that old things had passed away, and all things had become new, but the new things are the eternal things. And all had their existence in the mind of God in Christ before the old came into being. Christ is the beginning of everything that God is now bringing into existence and which is to stand in light and blessing forever. When God began his work in this creation which has now grown old, he did not begin with man.
Adam was the last creature form. The creation did not derive from him. It existed without him. It did not derive from him, though as far as earth was concerned, he was set over it as head. But the new order of things which will be brought about by the power of God will derive from Christ. It can have no existence apart from him. At present we have nothing of it but himself, but he is destined to fill all things, and everything must take character from him. At present there is nothing of the new order in actual existence. It is all in himself. He is the beginning, head, center, and source of that glorious creation in which God will rest, and in which he will have his eternal satisfaction and pleasure. And the fathers had known him that is from the beginning. They were not to be ensnared by the old things. Whatever these might have been, even as God had created them, and at first they had all been very good, they had been brought about to serve the purpose of God, and for the fathers they had already passed away. The new things filled their vision, and these new things were for the moment all contained in the Son of God, and although they were hidden from the natural eye, the fathers had discovered them in the power of the Spirit. They had yet to wait for the moment of display, but in the light of the Son of God the old order had dropped out of their sight, and they were not to be ensnared by it. The young men were strong. They were in the vigor of life. They had heard the word of God and kept it. No feeling of weakness discouraged them. The enemy in the open field had been put to flight by them. They had overcome the wicked one, he was not able to withstand them. But if he could not meet them in the open field in hand-to-hand -hand conflict, he had another way of accomplishing their ruin, and the apostle directs their attention to a point, which if left unguarded, might be used by the subtle foe to turn the battle against them, and to heap upon them confusion and overwhelming disaster. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Here was where the young men might fail. In fair fight they were invincible, but the enemy had cunning stratagems, and the world is a subtle snare. It has its attractions for the flesh, and powerful attractions they are, and many strong men have fallen victims to the deadly influences. But the antidote for this is the love of the Father. The Father has a world of his own, a pure world of light and life and righteousness and holy love. The Fathers, as we have been seeing, knew something of this world, in knowing him in whom it is all established and for the moment concealed. It is all of the Father, and in it there is not an element of this world, for all that is in this world is lust and pride, and nothing of these things is of the Father. Therefore he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The Son hast, declared the Father's name to us, that the love wherewith the Father loved the Son might be in us, and if the Father's love is in us, it is not only that we know it as our portion, but it has taken effect in us, so that it has become the life of our souls. And the consequence is that what the Father delights in is a delight to us, and what is obnoxious to him is obnoxious to us, and as the world has hated him and is obnoxious to him, it cannot be pursued and loved by one in whom the Father's love is. Then again the world is passing away and the lust thereof, there is nothing durable. The world is lawless, and its pleasures and riches cannot be durable, for lawlessness cannot be allowed to continue. In the Father's world the pleasures are forevermore, and the riches are durable, and the reason they are durable is because they are connected with righteousness. In this world the riches are the mammon of unrighteousness, but if you get riches and righteousness connected, you will find they are durable. And therefore the doer of the will of God is put in contrast with the lawless world. The world passes away, but the doer of the will of God abides for eternity. We are told that the darkness is passing away, and the world is passing away, how foolish, therefore, it is for anyone to set his heart upon the things of the world. The old order which has been ruined and corrupted by sin, and which is steeped in darkness, must pass away, and everyone who clings to it must pass away with it, but he who stands firm in separation from it, and in opposition to all its forces, controlled by the will of God, endures forever. The babes knew the Father. They had the spirit of sonship. 
Nothing less than this could be included in Christianity, for, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. All who are Christ's have his Spirit. And by him the love of God fills the heart, and in this way he witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. These may not have known the Father's world, as the Father's, and, in knowing him that is from the beginning, neither were they strong like the young men and able to hold the field in spite of the fierce onslaughts of the wicked one, but they knew the Father, and in abiding in the light of the Father's love, they would in a little while arrive at maturity. They are informed that it is the last time, or hour. An hour with John is a period of time, characterized by a certain event, which may be good or evil. He speaks in the Gospel of the Hour of Life-Giving, John chapter 5 verse 25, of Resurrection, 5:28, of the hour being come for his glorification, 12 verse 23, of a woman's hour being come when she is in travail, 16:21. And here he says it is the last hour. There was nothing more to be waited for except the coming of Christ, for the evil had been now fully developed, the Antichrists were present. When the Antichrist comes, it will not be any fresh development, for already there had come many Antichrists, and by this, he says, we know it is the last hour. When the Antichrist himself comes, there will be no room for the many Antichrists, but as he is to be the great masterpiece of Satan, and the end to which all the activities of the devil tend. He has today many of the same kind though of less spiritual power. This is what proves the last hour to have come, because when Antichrist arises, there is nothing to look for but the appearing of Christ, who shall consume the Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth, and destroy him with the brightness of his coming, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 18. These Antichrists had gone out from the Apostles, and from those who were standing for the truth, and were causing their hateful influence to be felt where the Apostles were not present to withstand them. They did not now acknowledge the apostles, nor the Christ whom they served, though once they had done so, for they had evidently at one time made a profession of faith in Christ. The devil whom they served and whose children they were, had been able to introduce them into the sphere of the profession of Christianity, but now they had gone out on lines of their own. And whatever name they may have given themselves, they denied boldly all that was the truth and life of Christianity. Had they been real believers they would have remained in the fellowship of the apostles, but their apostasy proved they never had part or lot in the matter. They denied Jesus was the Christ, and thus proved themselves liars. They denied the Father and the Son, and thus proved themselves antichrists. But the babes had the unction from the Holy One, and Christ became to them a means by which everything was tested. Jesus must be confessed to be the Christ. This was a very simple test indeed. He who denies Jesus to be the Christ, is a liar, and the babes knew that no lie was of the truth. Nothing that these deceivers said was to be listened to, they were detected and exposed and judged out of their own mouths. They were liars all of them. They were not like people who had never mixed among Christians, nor made any profession of belief in the glad tidings, for, as we have here, they had attached themselves to believers, had been in the Christian assembly. Under the power of the ministry of the Spirit, and now they had broken loose from all that was of God, and were spending their energies in denying that Jesus was the Christ. And in denying the Father and the Son. They do not seem to have presented anything as a substitute for Christianity, they spent their time denying the truth. They may have spoken of the Christ, but if they did, they affirmed that Jesus was not he. They may also have spoken of the Father, the boast of the Jew was, we have one Father even God, and it is common enough to hear men speak of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, while denying absolutely the Father and the Son. To confess the Father and the Son, is to admit that the world is in rebellion against God, and that the devil is prince and God of it, and that its judgment is certain. And also that man after the flesh is not in any relationship with God. But whoever denies the Son has not the Father either, whereas he who confesses the Son has the Father also.
they were to let that abide in them which they had heard from the beginning. What they had heard from the beginning was the revelation of God in Christ. It abode in the young men, and they were strong. The apostle desires it for the babes. And if that which they had heard from the beginning abode in them, they would abide in the Son and in the Father. The Father had been declared in the Son, and this had been brought to them in the report of the apostles, and in this lay eternal life for man, for, this is life eternal. That they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Abiding in the Son and in the Father, eternal life, which was promised them, would be realized in their souls. They would be in the enjoyment of the promised blessing. These things he wrote to them concerning those who seduced them. He would not have them diverted from Christ. The enemy was very busy, but the apostle was watchful, and he is careful to minister support to the weak. He says but little to the fathers in any special way, he has more to say to the young men, but he has most of all to say to the babes. But his confidence was in the anointing which abode in them, and which made him independent of the mind of man. It was their safeguard. It was true and not a lie. It attached them to Christ, and held them in living connection with him, and built them up in him. By the anointing they were able to distinguish between truth and falsehood, between the voice of the good shepherd and those strangers who would have led them away into doubt, darkness, and death. And by the teaching they would abide in the Son. The apostles had spoken the word of God to them, and they had believed it, and had received the Spirit that they might come into the benefit of all that was in Christ for them. No man could teach them, neither did they need anyone to teach them, the Spirit of truth was in them, and was quite competent to lead them into all truth, and not only able, but willing. It might be thought that, as God has been pleased to give us teachers, we must surely need them to build us up in the faith, but while this may be true in measure, all that any teacher can do inter unfold to us the mind of God in Christ. All that they bring before us must be contained in that which the apostles spoke from the beginning, and which we have now in the scriptures, the saints the apostles writes to had not the scriptures as we have. And if they attempt to teach us something in advance of what was declared from the beginning, we must avoid them. Perhaps we can hardly say that what we have heard from our instructors was what these saints had heard from the apostles, for they had received the testimony of God in all its purity. But it has not been quite so with us, for from our infancy we have been brought up in an atmosphere vitiated with legality, and with theories and fables which are the outcome of the corrupt minds of men. We have to find our way back to that which was announced from the beginning. But we have the anointing as they had, and in the Holy Scriptures we have the record of the Apostles' testimony, and we may count upon God to make the word of His grace good to us. Verse 27 finishes what he has to say to the babes. The reader may not be aware that the word translated children in chapters 2 verses 13 and 18 is not the same as that translated children in the other parts of the epistle. In verses 13 and 18 the word is better translated, little children, or babes. I have used the word babes. In verse 28 he once more addresses all, fathers, young men, and babes, under the term children, and exhorts them to abide in him, in order that the apostles who had spoken the word to them, and had sought to build them up in the faith, and to disentangle them from this world, and attach their hearts to Christ in heaven, might at the appearing of Christ find in the saints bearing Christ's likeness, the fruit of their labors, and have a full reward. He speaks in the same way to the elect lady and her children in the second epistle, and Paul also exhorts the Thessalonians after the same manner, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 19 to 20, chapter 3, and chapter 5 verse 8. Throughout the epistle the apostle keeps the great subject of eternal life before his own mind and before the minds of those to whom he writes, hence he exhorts them on two very important points. The first is to let that which they had heard from the beginning abide in them. It was to be the nourishment of their souls, and the strength of their hearts. If it abode in them, they would abide in the Son and in the Father, and here they would find eternal life. 
second, they were to abide in him. The enemy used all his energies and all his subtlety to divert them from Christ, and the profession swarmed with antichrists, who if they had given up the profession of Christianity for themselves. The profession was the sphere of the devilish operations. But the anointing taught them, and by his teaching they would abide in Christ in whom eternal life was. These two most important things the apostle brings prominently before them, that which they had heard from the beginning was to abide in them, and they were to abide in the Son. In verse 29 we come to those born of God, and the sign by which they are known. In the first four verses of the epistle we have the word of life in the person of Christ declared to us, that we might partake along with the apostles in the heavenly and eternal relationships which are in Christ, and in all the joys which belong to that sphere of unspeakable delights. At verse 5 we come to the message, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, giving us to know, that if we have fellowship one with another, it is in the pure unsullied light of the revelation of God, where everything and everyone is unmasked and laid naked and bare in that clear and searching light. But therein the value of the blood of Jesus Christ his Son, which gives us a perfect conscience, so that the light might not be intolerable to us, but that we might be at home in it. In the light we do not deceive ourselves, for we know we have sin in us, and we know also that it has been in activity, and that we have sinned in act. And that though we ought not to sin, should we be overtaken in a fault when we have been off our guard, we know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that he is the propitiation for our sins, so that our righteousness remains untarnished, for he is it, and the sin is not imputed. Next, our privilege is to keep his commandments, and in this way know that we know him, to keep his word, and have his love perfected in us, and by this know that we are in him. Next, our obligation if we claim to abide in him is to walk as his walked in obedience to God and in love to the brethren. He next states one thing which is true of all to whom he writes, their sins were forgiven them for his name's sake. All this is in the clear perfect spotless light of God. But as all have not apprehended the light in the same degree he addresses each according to their measure, fathers, young men and babes. Specifying the point at which each class had arrived in the growth of their souls and the dangers which beset him, winding up with the exhortation to all to abide in him. But in verse 29 we come to the children of light. The light being the revelation of God, to be the children of the light is to be the children of God. The light which came into the world in the person of the Son of God brought into existence a generation who bear the moral characteristics of God. From this, chapter 2 verse 29, onward to the end of the epistle it is not so much a question of where a man is, as of what he is. It is not, is he in the light, or, is he in the darkness? But what is he? Is he a child of God or a child of the devil? It is not now where a man walks who has eternal life, but who is he who has it? The great distinguishing feature then of one born of God and the thing that marks him out as born of God is, he practices righteousness. He is not only in the light, but he is the fruit of the light, and he walks according to the light. He comes out on earth morally descriptive of the righteous God. The law was holy, just and good, and was the perfect measure of the responsibility of a child of Adam, but under it God was not declared, and man remained in his old relationships as in the flesh. But God has now declared himself, and in Christ new relationships have been established, and a new and higher order of conduct flows from those new and higher relationships. We are to be imitators of God and to walk according to the example set us by Christ. We are sanctified to his obedience. Our walk is to be in the light of the complete revelation of God, and in the recognition of the new relationships which are ours in Christ. And for this no one has the least power except those born of God. Therefore he says, if ye know that he is righteous ye know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him.